Welcome to a Spotlight Innovation episode, where we feature two guests who will share how their books are making a difference in the palliative care world. Our first guest is Erin Gallion, author of The Badass Advocate. She's a pharmaceutical rep by day and a caregiver advocate by night, and she gives amazing tips on how to be persistent and respectful and how to ask strong questions to get powerful knowledge. Our second guest is Jen O'Brien, author of The Hospice Doctor's Widow. We talk about the idea of precious time, balancing hope and preparation, and some of the simple tools and tips that she created that can help anyone facing a life-changing illness. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Welcome to the podcast, Erin. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, you are the author of Badass Advocate, and there's a book and a journal, and it's about becoming the champion your seriously ill loved one deserves. And before we get into what's in the book, I'd love to hear the story of what led you to write this book. Yes. So in 2017, my sister Megan, who was also my best friend growing up, was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So she was only 46 years old at the time and it really came as a shock. She had been healthy her whole life. In fact, we used to joke all the time that in her professional career, she never took a sick day. I mean, most of us take at least two or three a year, right? We get a cold or whatever. Not my sister, she was always healthy. She was a former collegiate athlete and kept in shape and always ate healthy. So that was important to her. And so we were really surprised when she was diagnosed with cancer and not that it's always due to diet and exercise, but you know, you just never expect the, the really healthy person to all of a sudden get that diagnosis. And what we found was that the cancer she probably had for about a year and didn't know it. And that cancer caused an autoimmune disease and the autoimmune disease caused a very rare and aggressive lung disease caused called bronchiolitis obliterans, also known as popcorn lung. In February of 2018, the good news was that she was cancer-free. She went through chemo and she did get through cancer. She would always say that she was going to kick cancer's butt, and she did. And we were so happy to hear good news finally. But unfortunately, the lung disease had just continued to progress. And it would continue to do that until October of 2018 when Megan passed away. So during that time, I lived in, and I still live in Texas. I live in Plano, Texas, and my sister lived in Charleston, South Carolina with her family, her husband and two young girls. And I would fly back and forth to support my sister and advocate for her. My mom was her main caregiver. She, my mom lived down the street, so we were blessed to have my mom be able to do that for my sister. And... I realized that after she passed away and it was so tragic for my family that I needed to give back to other families. So how did that experience turn into a book? So I've been in the pharmaceutical industry for over 20 years and I teach pharmaceutical reps how to speak to physicians. So that's my job. It's still my job today. I train them on lots of things like their career development, selling skills, how to speak to physicians, how to understand different communication styles, and all of those things that I learned came in handy 
when I was advocating for my sister. That was never my goal, right? But it, it did, it, my professional knowledge came in handy. And I thought, well, if I take this knowledge that I've gained over a 20 plus year career and I can use it for my sister, then other families can use it too. I just need to teach them how to do it. And so that's really been my mission ever since my sister passed away. It's my way of keeping her legacy alive, keeping her alive in my heart, and then also giving back because I don't want her death to be in vain. And so I thought, well, this is the one thing I can give back to the world. And so I wrote the book that you mentioned, Badass Advocate, which people love the name. I didn't expect that, but, <laughs> and it wasn't because I felt like a badass. It was because I feel like I can teach others how to be a badass. Some of these things I did, we did while my sister was sick and other things I realized looking back, that I wish I had done, or we could have done a little bit different and learned, you know, you always learn from your experiences, right? So why not give someone else that gift and say, you can go do this and you can do it better than me. And so in your book, um, can you tell us about some of the strategies that you talk about and, and share, um, you know, some of those tips that you've learned that others could try to emulate? Absolutely. So the number one tip that I talk about is building a support team. And I'm sure you might've heard other people talk about this because you've been doing this podcast for so long, but it's so important. So even if people have heard it, I'm gonna remind you to do it. You really need support. Whether you're the main caregiver or if you're someone like me that my mom is the main caregiver, but I still was supporting my sister. I had a lot of anxiety and stress seeing my best friend be so sick and have this diagnosis. Having people around you to support you is critical. So build that support team, work with the patient. Don't ever do it on your own in a silo because really the patient, it's their health, it's their body. And so they need to be in on who's part of their support team. Is it a best friend? Is it a neighbor? Is it siblings? Maybe it's not your immediate family. Maybe you don't get along great, or maybe it is. Maybe it will naturally form like it did in my family because we were close growing up. But I know that not all families are like that. So we had, my sister had a mixture of my immediate family, her husband, and then a cousin, and then a really close friend. So it was kind of a mixture of people that came together and we were advocating on my sister's behalf. And in addition to that, we helped each other. You alleviate stress from each other. Hey, I'll step in today and I'll do this for Megan. I'll take her to the doctor's appointment or I'll go pick up her meds. Every patient and every caregiver needs more than just yourself right? You need other people to help you get through it. Yeah. One of your other tips, which I think is really helpful is be persistent and respectful. And this is one of the things that people struggle with a lot because, you know, they sort of have the sense that they have to be a good patient and they don't want to rock the boat, but you know, you have a background in pharmaceutical sales, like how, do, what advice do you have for people to be uh, persistent and respectful? Yeah, it's a great question. So I feel like people usually fall into one or two camps because it is an emotional time for everyone. Either they are almost too polite, like what you're talking about, where they respect physicians, which you should, right? We should all respect physicians and each other. That's not a bad thing, but don't have put them on such a high pedestal that you fear asking questions or giving pushback. That's going to hurt you and it's going to prevent you from really advocating for your sick loved one. There's also people that are too aggressive. So you need to be respectful. So what I talk about is something that I teach in pharmaceutical sales. 
and it's how to handle pushback. And let's say you disagree with what the physician or the nurse, it doesn't matter who it is. It could be someone in an insurance company. It doesn't matter who the person is. It's the same technique. And it's A-A-E-A is the abbreviation. So the first one is acknowledge. You want to acknowledge what the other person is saying. So if you and I are just in a casual conversation and we disagree on something and I come at you disagreeing, how is that going to make you feel? You're immediately going to put up your back. You're going to get defensive and you're not going to hear anything I'm saying. And now we have two opposing opinions and no one's listening to the other party. That's going to get you nowhere. But if I can acknowledge that I've heard what you said, that already opens up that dialogue. So that's the very first, almost, if you don't remember all of these, this is the most important part, acknowledge what the other person said. And you can do that by repeating, saying, I hear you. Um, and then you do wanna ask questions. You might not be 100% clear, even if you say, I understand doctor what you're saying, or this is what I've heard you say, you may have misinterpreted. So ask some questions. Is this right? Is this what you're telling me? Are you saying that, my mom should do X, Y, and Z, or are you saying this? I don't know if I'm 100% clear. Make sure that you're on the same page. And then you want to, after you listen and you're fully clear, so that may take some time, you wanna explain your side. Now it's your time to talk. So I recommend if you're gonna have this conversation and you're planning on this conversation, it's not impromptu, come prepared. You can't always come prepared to every conversation that's a conflict. But if you can do your homework, maybe a doctor has given you um, steps or the patient steps of what they should do next. And you've heard differently, or you've got a second opinion or a third opinion, and it's conflicting. Come prepared with what those things are, have it written down, whatever you need, print it out. So you have your argument for, I wish I had a better word for that, because I don't want you to argue, but your side of the story, maybe you have it prepared. And then I want you to come to an agreement. And maybe the agreement could be that you part ways with a physician. That's sometimes going to happen. But I hope that doesn't. I hope what happens is that you two can agree upon what next steps are because you've heard each other's side of the story. Wow. A-A-E-A. Love it. Yes. It's be applied yes. To so your acknowledge, ask questions, explain your side, and then come to an agreement. Amazing. Um, because, because I'm, you know, looking at some of your resources on your website and, yeah. you know, the, the strategies are laid out there, which, you know, obviously accompany the book and there's the, the other resources that go with it. The, your third strategy is asking strong questions. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, with your background in, in pharmaceutical sales, like what does that mean? And what are the tips behind uh, asking good questions? Yeah, this is one of my favorite ones to talk about because I also love teaching new hires how to ask good questions. I don't know why, but I think it's a lot of fun. And most of us who aren't in sales don't think about the questions we ask. We just ask what's ever on our mind. And so a lot of times what we do is we ask close-ended questions. So a close-ended question is a question that will start with do, is, are, can. All of those questions will result in a yes or no answer for the most part. Unless if you speak to someone like me who is like very talkative, I may give you unwanted information. <laughs> but anyway, for the most part, if you ask questions that start with those, you're gonna get a yes or no answer. That's not a bad thing. But 
if you are trying to advocate for someone and you're trying to gain information, as much knowledge as you can, you want to ask as many open-ended questions as you can. So open-ended questions start with what, when, who, how, okay? And that way, the person that's listening and answering the question, they will give you unsolicited information, meaning that they are just going to, they're going to open up the door. You've just opened up the door for them to just spill out that information and give you anything that's in their mind. The thing I would say is try not to lead them down the path, okay? Sometimes we can still ask a what question and make it leading. Well, you know, you might say something like, well, what about exercise? And then you make it a close in a question by saying, can they walk? No, no, don't follow up with the question. Not yet. Say, when we're talking about my mom's health, let's say your mom has diabetes. When we're talking about my mom's health, what kind of exercise is best for her? And just zip it and let the physician or the nurse speak and give you the information that they see is best. That way you are not editing them. You're not restricting what they're telling you. Okay. And then if the, the doctor says, well, really anything within, you know, 30 minutes of exercise and walking is good. Okay, great. So walking is good. Can you tell me a little bit more what other exercises are good? Because maybe your mom doesn't like to walk. Maybe, she, maybe it's too painful for her, whatever it is. So you can follow up with some other questions. If you use those techniques, you will get better information out of the person that you're speaking to. But it's not always easy when you're new to it, okay? So my tip is when you're at home, before you go and speak to the physician, if you have an appointment, write down all the questions that you have. And then go back. Don't edit yourself. Just brain dump. I got all these questions. And work with the patient. Work with the support team. And then go back and read your questions. And if they start with can, do, is, are, can you change them into an open-ended question? And if you can, awesome, do that and then rewrite it with open-ended. And then if you need to follow up with a close-ended question because you need to clarify. So if you said, so what kind of exercise is good for mom? Well, walking is great. Also, she could do a bicycle, a, a, you know, a, a bike at home. That's fine too. Okay, great. How long should she exercise for? Well, 30 minutes. Okay, so is, a, is it okay to break that 30 minutes up into 10 minute increments? So that's a close-ended question, but it was a follow-up to my open-ended questions because now I have a very clear idea as to what mom can do. I hope that helps. Yeah, that helps a lot, Erin. Thank you. I think you're emphasizing how important asking questions is, and that's a really big thing in the waiting room revolution. I think the best way to learn especially from physicians, I have so much respect for physicians, is asking questions. You know, they may have knowledge in their brain that they're not sharing, not because they're holding back, but they may not think to share it with you. So the more questions you can ask, the more powerful you're going to be. You're going to, be, you're going to empower yourself to advocate for your loved one. Even if it's just things like, one thing I talk about in the book that I did when my sister was sick, was I asked the nurse, a very sweet nurse, about my sister's vital signs machine. Okay, if you've never been in a hospital before, you may see this machine, if you don't know what a vital signs machine is, for those listening, it's the machine that they're hooked up to. It says their blood pressure and their heart rate and all this. You may not know what those numbers are. So why not ask? 
And if you know what the numbers are for you when you're healthy, they may not be the same numbers, ideal numbers for the patient, depending on their disease. Ask those questions. That just empowers you to advocate for your sick loved one. So one time my sister was, I knew her numbers. I knew her numbers were different than mine because she had a lung disease. So her respiratory rate was, would be different. And actually what her heart rate spiked, it went through the roof and she was sedentary. She actually was asleep and then it jarred her awake. And I was just sitting there like reading a book. We were just hanging out having quiet time in her, in her hospital room. And it went up to, I think like I wrote it in the book. Now it's been a few years. I think it's 160 or 180, which is crazy when you're sitting, just sitting there, you're not working out. Right. It's high anyway. And I knew at that moment I had to take action. Now, if I wasn't educated, I might not have known that there was an issue. She ended up being fine in that situation, but still knowledge is power. I'm curious, like, what has the reaction been to, you know, the, the, the very practical tips you're giving to be a badass advocate? Yeah. So I've gotten some great feedback and I think the best feedback that I've gotten is from just people that are like me or like you that, you know, they have a sick loved one. It happens suddenly. They don't know what to do. They hear about the book, whether it's someone gives it to them or they stumble upon it on Amazon or what have you. And that they put, they may not put all of the tips to use, which is fine. That wasn't my intention. I don't expect that. But even if one or two things I say in the book resonate with you, and it's the exact thing that you need at that time in your life, um, and it works, great. So I have like one story at the start. I had, um, it was actually a coworker of mine, her father-in-law, I'm sorry, not her father-in-law, her father had a, I think it was a heart attack, either a heart attack or a stroke. I think it was a heart attack right before Christmas. And her mom was the advocate. Now her parents don't live near her. They live several states away. So she gave her mom my book and her mom read it. And she went into the chapter about how to ask strong questions. And so I talk about techniques that salespeople use to ask better questions, which is really important when you're speaking to doctors or nurses, you need to gain all that knowledge that we talked about. And so she went into this appointment with the doctor and her husband, asked him a bunch of questions after reading that chapter. And at the end of the meeting, the doctor said, wow, you asked some really good questions. And I felt so good that, you know, I can't cure my coworker's dad. That's not what I'm going to be able to do. But I'm hoping that I can help this journey be a little bit easier for you. And it doesn't take you 20 years like it did for me to figure out these things. You can read this book as you're going along. It's not that big of a read. And if you need to skip ahead to a certain chapter, go and do it just help you in that moment when you need it most. And so when I hear stories like that, it makes me feel good that I'm giving back and that I'm making a difference, hopefully, in another's lives. What advice do you have for other caregivers or patients? I think that's what caregivers and family members in general need to understand is it's hard if you can't control the disease because you can't, but what you can control is how you advocate for your loved one and you can speak up and, and it's not just speaking up to the doctor, the staff, it's also taking care of them. Don't forget about what's going inside here, their mind and their heart. Like, I think sometimes we focus so much on the disease. We forget there's still a person there who is afraid or, you know, overwhelmed or has anxiety. Like, don't forget about them and help them to work through those feelings that, that they're experiencing as well. 
And so my hope is that things get better for patients and for caregivers, make it easier on them. My personal goal is just, like I said, to get in early in their journey. So I'm hoping that the more steam that my book picks up or, and it doesn't have to be the book, just even my website, my social media, things that people hear. And I, and I speak on podcasts, I speak at different public events. I hope that the right people hear at the start of their journey so they can advocate for their loved one and they know how to do it and they feel confident and they get their loved one the best care possible. Their diagnosis is almost not relevant. It's whether you get them the best care. That's what I care about. And that's all I can help you with. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is so much fun speaking to you. And I feel like I was thinking about the title of this podcast and the waiting room really resonates with me because I can't tell you how many doctors waiting rooms I have waited in my entire life between being a patient myself, a caregiver and advocate or a pharmaceutical rep or coaching a pharmaceutical rep. So <laughs> this is just one more waiting room and this is the most fun waiting room I've ever been in. So thank you so much. Brad. <laughs> thank you. We are excited to have Jen O'Brien, the author of The Hospice Doctor's Widow, uh, on our podcast today. Jen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Sien and Sammy. I am absolutely honored. Honored. So are we. <laughs> yeah, I thought I would just kick it off with a question of, you know, the backstory uh, of the book and what motivated you to write it. Well, that's quite a story, actually. Um, it, it, it was never intended to be a book. Um, it was an art journal that I kept. Um, when Bob was diagnosed, my late husband, Bob Lemberg, was a hospice and palliative care physician and got diagnosed with a, um, you know, metastatic stage four renal clear cell carcinoma. And um, I turn, I'm a self-taught collage um, artist. And I sort of turned to art journaling just as a method for self-care. Mm -hmm. And um, and I kept the journal. He lived for 22 months after the diagnosis. And I, I kept the journal throughout that time. Of course, there was there was a point at which I didn't actually, you know, I was just writing stuff and came back to create the the images later. And then I kept going with the journal um, for about a year and a half after he died. Mm -hmm. um, it just it was like I said, it was really I, I don't even think Bob ever knew about the journal. Mm -hmm. um, and then my background is in healthcare, in in leadership. I, I do a lot of interim CEOing for very large physician practices. And mm -hmm. so I was doing one of those um, positions for a multi-specialty group here in Little Rock, Arkansas, where I am. And um, and a neurologist that I worked with um was telling me about how he was diagnosing three different patients with ALS. And I brought my journal into him um, and he took it home and read it and came back the next day and said, yeah, you're not getting your journal back. <laughs> I will be loaning it to these patients and their spouses. And you need to try to figure out how to get that thing published because it helps close the gap between what I can do for the patient and what the family caregiver really needs. And uh, well, you can imagine, right, how compelling that was that my little old art journal might help some other people that were going through what I'd gone through. 
And um, so, yeah, I went to work and found a very, very small, very independent press that was willing to take a chance because it's a very odd book. You know, it's it's eight by 10. It's premium color. It's only 85 pages long. Um, so it's really odd. You know, it's a picture book, basically, for all intents and purposes about taking care of my husband who's dying. And, and then for a little bit at the end, uh, the grief stuff. And so, um, yeah, they took a big chance and published it. And um, it, it won four awards, including a Nautilus award. So, and, and perhaps more important to me is that it's, it's helped a lot of people. So, yeah. So, so like, you know, that really wasn't a decision to write the book. It was just sort of, yeah, it came out very organically and yeah. Well, you and I connected very early um, in my social media um, debut, I would say you were the one of the first people that connected with me. And I believe we connected over some of the tools that you had created uh, for caregivers, Um, not just for caregivers, actually for patients uh, to planning ahead uh, and getting prepared for, um, you know, a progressive illness. And I just found your work very practical um, and very helpful. And so I'm wondering if you want to describe some of the tools that you have created. Sure, sure. Um, Yeah, that was something quite natural that came out of after the book came out, people started asking, you know, what about this? And what about this? So I have, I actually have four free downloads at this point. Um, One is a fun five art journaling prompts. It's not necessarily for going through this, it's just art journaling. Um, But people don't even know what art journaling is. So it's a fun thing. They can download it and art journal to their heart's content. And then the second one was indeed like 10 self-care ideas that don't cost you anything because I think a lot of folks think self-care is like an expensive massage and that sort of thing. And if you're if you're caregiving, you typically don't have the time or the money for that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So very, as you say, very practical um, self-care tips for the family caregiver. And then um, I did this thing called the At Peace Toolkit, a guide Mm -hmm. to being at peace with end of life. And it is a three-step guide to sort of getting your stuff together, whether you are well or ill, you know, you know, anybody um, to to get their stuff together and start thinking about being prepared for end of life. And then most recently, I'm not sure if you saw this one or not, but because of my background in leadership in healthcare, I started to think about the family caregiver position and thinking about what if I had to hire for this job, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was like, what would that position description look like? And I created a formally written position description. Mm -hmm. I consulted besides kind of knowing what I did and what I was called to do and, and, and what's involved in a formal position description. I consulted a good friend of mine who is a happens to be a pediatrician whose adult son was um, five years ago, became a quadriplegic as a result of a skiing accident. So she, right, is, she knows what what she's called upon to do. So Mm -hmm. we created this position description that is 
it's its purpose is twofold. One is to help those of us in healthcare to understand what we are calling on these lay people to do. Mm -hmm. um, it's a big job. I will mm -hmm. tell you, there is no collective bargaining agreement that would mm -hmm. ever agree to this position. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second reason was to help family caregivers fully recognize what they are doing. And then at the point at which, for whatever reason, more than likely the death of their care recipient, they're going back out into the world, then they have a formal document that describes some of the things that they've been doing so that they could, you know, fill in a gap on a resume in a way that would help a future employer really understand what they're capable of. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily, mm -hmm. not, not to say you're certified in anything that you're, but just to say, this is what I've, I'm capable of. I have done this. Mm -hmm. I, I know my lane, but I am also capable of learning and performing. I, I see your newsletter and I follow you on social media and I am so impressed with all the work that you're doing, um, you know, Thank to share you. and to improve other people's experiences and to help them be eyes wide open when they find themselves in these positions, right? Because it's usually, like you said, people don't interview and sign up. They serendipitously just by um, circumstances end up uh, in this care or role, right? But um, they don't even realize that's what they are until they're deep into it. If it's okay, I kind of want to go back just a teeny bit because what is so partly so interesting about your story is that um, Bob was actually a palliative care doctor. Yes. And so while he has spent his career helping other people to live while, well while they're dying, and, and then suddenly when he got his diagnosis, you were called upon to do that. So can you tell yes. us a little bit more about what that was like, the story there, and what you learned from him that helped you? I, I'm so thrilled that you brought us back to that. So mm -hmm. I think that really ours was the consummate uh, in the no journey, mm -hmm. um, in that, as you point out, Bob was a palliative care physician himself. Um, he knew uh, palliative care, end of life, inside and out, professionally. Mm -hmm. I had already lost my only sibling, and my mother. And so I knew it personally. Mm -hmm. um, one of the, um, so there's, so I actually went through the book to, to highlight there are about, there are three pages in particular that I think speak to the in the know journey. Mm -hmm. The first is page three, which um, talks about what Bob used to call precious time. Mm -hmm. He would tell patients and families, you're into precious time. Mm -hmm. um, meaning death is imminent, death is coming. Mm -hmm. uh, this doesn't go on forever. And this is precious time is when you say what you need to say and you don't say what you will later regret. Mm -hmm. um, because he also would say, you know, I've seen death thousands of times. It's peaceful. Mm -hmm. I don't worry about the patient. The mm -hmm. patient's going to be fine. It's the family I worry about. Mm -hmm. And by introducing this, this concept of precious time, the family got that awareness that mm -hmm. so many other doctors and healthcare professionals are unwilling mm -hmm. to introduce, but it's a lovely way to say it. Mm -hmm. And it's a love, you know, it's easily received. Mm -hmm. And I know for a fact it was beneficial because we got thank you notes. He, he mm -hmm. would get thank you notes for, thank you for letting me know what was really happening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's another page in the book about that I think speaks to the in the know journey. It's page 12 of the book. And it is a picture 
of me and Bob, um, because Bob, who hated having his photo taken, uh, within a week or so of the diagnosis, said, well, if you want a good picture of me, we better get it soon. Mm. And um, and I was um, honestly, I was a little reluctant because because I was in a little bit of denial and I was having my own struggles. Um, but I mentioned it to a to a photographer, and I'm very grateful that that photo photographer was persistent and said, "When are we doing this? I'm coming over. When are we doing this?" And sure enough, we got a fabulous picture of the two of us. Um, we got a lovely picture of Bob alone that I was able to use um, with his obituary in the paper. But if but he knew he knew that soon he would start to look, you know, not as much like him his healthy self, and he was right. Um, he never looked terrible, but in my eyes, but, um, but he was right. And we were so happy to get that picture. Um, the third page, I think that really speaks to it is, is page 32, which is um, the symbol on it. I don't know if you can see it, but it's on the wall up above me at peace. It's the at symbol sort of intertwined with the peace symbol. And we went and put all of the property automobile everything in my name um the reason it it's called at peace is because the notary public was um she was like why are y'all doing this and I said well because Bob's dying which of course she got all squirmy and nervous and I said we're at peace with it because we were and because Bob had said that before and that seemed to settle her down you know enough to to get the job done there sorry there is one fourth page that I didn't I forgot about page 51 I won't yammer on about it except that I watched Bob decide on treatments right when you're cancer especially cancer I think you get presented this, this this treatment works for a while and then you get a bad side effect and you can't take it anymore and so the oncologist will offer something else and I watched him in his doctor brain you know decide whether he wanted to try something and thought about, wow, how great it would be, you know, and I basically distilled that down to a bunch of questions that I understood. <laughs> and so page 51 is called treatment decisions. And it's, you know, when you're faced with this question, here's how to sort through it, basically. You know, Jen, to me, so much of what you are talking about that is in your book aligns with the keys of the waiting room revolution. And of course, our forthcoming book, hope for the best, plan for the rest. And I know you've listened to our podcast season one, and that's why you reached out and that's how we connected. And I guess I'm wondering if any of our keys specifically jump out as relevant to your story. Yeah, let's let's talk about the walk to roads because when I when I heard that in the, I believe it was like the second episode of, of your first season, yeah. um, uh, I, I was absolutely thrilled because the expression hope for the best and prepare for the worst is actually in my little 85 page book twice. Mm. Um, and the backstory on that is kind of interesting in that I didn't learn that from Bob. I learned that from an oncologist that I worked with about 1,000 years ago, <laughs> um, who was a lung cancer specialist. And he used to say that to his patients at every visit. Mm. And here's what I think 
is important. There's lots of things that are important, as I know you know, but number one, I think the and Mm -hmm. is perhaps the most important word in that entire phrase, right? Because Mm -hmm. lots of folks will say preparation is a hope killer. No, 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 no. No, it is not. Mm -hmm. We are complex people and we are perfectly capable of doing both, right? So it's an and. In mm-hmm. fact, I will go ahead and submit that if you replace, and is the conjunction of choice. Mm-hmm. And if you replace all of your ors and buts with an and, mm-hmm. you will probably live a more accurate, you know, life and communication. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I think is important. Um, the reason it's in the book twice is because the first time I noticed that what is the best and the worst changes. Mm-hmm. Um, and people have talked about, should we really be using the word best and worst? And uh, you know what? I, I can't undo that now. Those were the words I used. I, I um, quite frankly, when you're facing your husband dying, it is, I, I, I'm not going to lie. It's the worst. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, but you can substitute it with whatever works. And I love your, your title. Um, but, but the best and the worst change when we first got Bob's diagnosis, um, there was this possibility, you know, there's these targeted therapies out, right? And there was the possibility that, um, that we would find one of those for his particular genetic cancer and he would be cured. Mm-hmm. And that was indeed the best, mm-hmm. right? Um, and the worst was him dying. Um, but very quickly when that wasn't a possibility, um, the best became good quality time together and the worst became suffering. And, and for me, the worst was the idea that, that I would engage in silly arguments or other stupid stuff that I would then have to live with after he died. So for me, that was a big, that's why precious time is so important. The language is simple. Mm-hmm. right and people can understand that language mm-hmm. um and the and the second thing i'd like to highlight about him was that he did ask it at every visit mm-hmm. and i think what's so important about that is when you as the clinician or the social worker or whomever right are picking up on hmm I don't know that enough prep is being done here mm-hmm. if i'm bringing it back to okay where we are where are we on the hope and mm-hmm. where are we on the prep, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. And somebody can say, oh, well, doc, we're going to beat this thing. Oh, mm-hmm. well, okay. I, you know, you, you seem really solid on that. Tell me about the preparation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that we're always saying it's both. It's always both. And and you're getting you're getting that read, right? You know who's, who's balancing both and who's feels like prep is a, is a hope killer. And, you, mm-hmm. and then Anyway, you you can you can read that and by repeating that question at every visit, and I would love it if all oncologists would repeat mm-hmm. that question at every visit. Um, that uh, by repeating it, right, I know I'm going to be asked as either the patient or the caregiver. Oh, he's gonna he or she's gonna ask us again. Hope and prep. Hope, you know, you get used to it, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I, th- I think I think it was powerful that he would repeat that with every visit. You know, Jen, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, since Bob was a hospice doctor, one might assume that you had more intel into your journey and you knew what to look for and had a smoother journey. I'm curious if that is in fact how it played out. 
when you look strictly at the palliative care part of our equation, um, one of the biggest differences was that uh, basically ours was DIY, <laughs> do it yourself. Um, mm -hmm. Bob was sort of determined to have his privacy, to not be the patient of his colleagues. And I was determined to give him that, right? Mm -hmm. So probably the person who suffered the most was me because palliative care is one of the few specialties that actually does recognize the role of the family caregiver better than all the other specialties. Um, and so I, I probably lost out a little bit on some professionals who could have seen that I was like, you know, nearly losing my mind on a couple of days and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and interestingly enough, hospice was also not as smooth as you might have thought, given that it was such an in the know journey. And again, it's I think that I think it's worth exploring because in essence, even the hospice doctor had trouble admitting himself to hospice. Um, so I think it's perfectly understandable. It's a very hard thing to to make that transition. And I have lots of thoughts and ideas on what makes that so hard. Mm -hmm. um, in Bob's case, I think it was very specific and it's one of the few regrets that I have. Mm -hmm. I think it came down to, he didn't wanna die at home. Mm -hmm. um, he wanted to die in a facility. He was, he had worked in a hospital for 50 years by the time he died. He was more at home in a hospital, not, not necessarily, you know, an inpatient hospice. He was more at home in a facility than he was at home sometimes. And I knew he didn't want to die at home. And I think what he was having trouble with was admitting himself to hospice status, mm -hmm. knowing he wasn't going anyplace. But I knew I could get him there before he died. And I, I just never made the, you know, the connection that I needed to assure him of that because also he was the physician, right? He had been a physician for over 40 years at that point, And nobody was really gonna, I wasn't, I certainly wasn't going to argue with him when he, when he was saying, this is what we're doing next. He's in charge. Um, he just happened to also be the patient. So it was a, a really tough situation. Um, but it ended up being a, a bit of a, an intense, um, you know, we were having, he didn't end up admitting himself to hospice status until about 10 days, two weeks before he died. And it, it came, we'd had, as you, as you can imagine, it was, I was on my own. There was, there was nobody helping me. Um, Cause that's what he wanted. He wanted only me. And we had some really rough nights and I am no clinician. Let me tell you. Okay. I don't do bodily fluids. I'm, I mean, I did for him, but you know, I get nervous about stuff and we'd had another really rough night. And I said, that was really hard. And he got, got really cross with me. And he said, Jen, I'm dying. Mm -hmm. What's the worst that happens? I die. And I said, you know what, Bob, I'm sorry, but that's not the worst that happens. If I walk back into the bedroom and you've died, I know who to call. I know what to do. Mm -hmm. But if you fall out and you see, or you seize or something happens and you haven't died and you've been so clear with me not to call the EMTs, mm -hmm. what am I going to do then? Mm -hmm. what, because if I don't call someone, mm -hmm. the sheriff's going to show up at my house and say, lady, your husband died due to your neglect. I mean, I, I live in the South, you know, this could happen. Mm -hmm. This has happened. Um, so, 
so he kind of, when, when we had that, he got wide-eyed and he realized I was absolutely right. And that if he just admitted himself to a hospice status, at least I would have someone to call that wasn't going to resuscitate him. That was just going to make him comfortable until he died. You know, do you have any advice for patients and families who are just starting um, their journey with a serious illness? Oh, wow. You know, I mean, really the foundation of this podcast is the best advice. The, the, and I'll replace the, I mean, the, in the know, yes, but I'm going to go ahead and augment that with precious time with recognizing that that that's what that is. Meaning we know how this ends, Mm -hmm. right? Even if you go into remission, even if you get cured for a time at the end of your life, you will still die. Mm -hmm. Um, I talk about the triad of certainty, which is at the end of life comes death. There are no Mm do-overs in end of life Mm -hmm. and changed forever. The loved ones remain and remember. And I guess my advice is put that triad of certainty first Mm -hmm. and go toward that in the walk two roads way, Mm -hmm. balancing both, enjoying what you, the time you have, but while, and recognizing the work and the preparation to be done. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Jen, for all your time today. Yeah, absolutely. It's my pleasure. This has been fabulous. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. You can visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com to learn more about our movement and how you can join it. The podcast is produced by myself, Kayla McMillan, Valerie Bishop, Shilpa Jyothi Kumar, and Maggie Sivak. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketsa.